Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. It is the great business of every Christian to save souls. People complain that they do not know how to take hold of this matter. Why, the reason is plain enough. They have never studied it. They have never taken the proper pains to qualify themselves for the work. If you do not make it a matter of study, how you may successfully act in building the kingdom of Christ, you are acting a very wicked and absurd part as a Christian. Thus spoke the very fascinating character, Charles Grandison Finney. You and just, sound just like Charles Finney. Oh, it's, dear. Can we go back and record that in, then over? Because incredible. I don't want to. Uh, there we go. So uh, we are here. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Michael McMullen. We are going to talk about one of the most fascinating persons within evangelicalism in the 19th century, and that is Charles Grandison Finney. Uh, Finney lived from, he was born on August 29th, 1792. He died August 16th, 1875. That's the date that we're looking at here for this week in church history. Uh, what should our listeners know about Finney um, that maybe they they don't know about his story? Um, that's tricky because there's <laughs> there's really so much. Um, you you mentioned the name of Finney, and and uh, for people who are aware of him, maybe have read about him, studied him, uh, he will certainly provoke a response. Uh, it, it's either going to be one of uh, admiration or, or one of uh, consternation. Um, and and uh, I, I think there's no real middle ground with the kind of reaction he does provoke. And, and there are reasons for that, right? So uh, let's talk a little bit about his life, and then we'll get to some of those reasons, because I, I don't think we can avoid it uh, overall. So he, he's born into a large uh, family in the area of New York. Um, he becomes a Christian, um, and uh, he, he kind of— does this uh, at, at while he's a young man, he's studying the law. Uh, and as he's doing this, he as as he's doing this, he becomes a Christian. He feels a call to ministry, and he is or uh, he becomes a licensed minister in the Presbyterian Church. Right. I'm be careful with my terms there. Um, and with that, he tries to uh, train and teach uh, others, but he's got challenges that he sees within some of the doctrines taught by uh, the Presbyterian Church. And so uh, he, he kind of moves away from uh, Presbyterianism overall. While he's wrestling with all of that, though, he finds a voice as a revivalist. There is no one in America who has been involved within evangelicalism who hasn't been directly in experience with some aspect of the teaching of Finney because his ideas so permeated evangelicalism from the time of the Second Great Awakening because he he is the voice, the main voice of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, just, I don't know even how, how else to talk about that, yeah, right? I it's mean, just... The, the kind of nickname is given, this father of uh, American revivalism, um, 
kind of sums things up. He He's there at the kind of fountainhead of, of what will come later. Whether you like him or not, he certainly uh, leaves a path that others then like Moody and even Billy Graham will follow. That's right. Um, so, you know, I mean, one of the things that people may not know is, yeah, he, he goes with the Presbyterians, but he's commissioned uh, as a missionary in the following year uh, by a, a female missionary society in New York, which I've never really understood. But um, <laughs> And, and uh, that's really the beginning of uh, his revivalistic preaching because he's able then to go out and, and preach where people will listen. Uh, and he has that commission to do that as a missionary. And and really, when he set up to preach in a town, it was a to-do, right? So uh, they would find a space just outside of town in a field. They would set up a large tent, uh, if capable of doing so, or it would be done open air. And people would come from miles around to hear Finney preach. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was a sight to behold. Um, people would travel. They'd be from all ranks of society, uh, all classes. They're traveling huge distances. Um, amazing numbers of people. Um, they're listening to the gospel, many of them for the first time. Uh, they want, you know, one of the big things seems to be they're wanting a, a certainty about the assurance of salvation. Yeah. And, and that, that, I think, is where uh, he finds a niche, that uh, they are presented with a, a, a very clear picture of heaven and hell and their destiny, and that they can have assurance of that by their decision that night, and that ministers should push for that that night when they're preaching. Yeah, so this is, uh, he was accused of, of- developing or creating new things. And, and it was on that particular point, that preaching to draw a response immediately. He created what was known as the anxious bench, yes. which essentially was kind of the unoccupied front row that nobody right. wants to sit in. Yes. And what he would, he would encourage individuals that if you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit to come forward while he was preaching yes. and to come under the conviction of the Spirit on the front row. And so people would be moving while he's preaching, and he would start preaching directly at those individuals who came forward. Yeah, for him, you know, that he is reacting against the Calvinism of his day in a number of ways, and he's going to face real opposition because of that. And and that will carry on even today. So he's criticized for these new measures. Um, he, you know, he's the one um, kind of bringing people to a point of decision rather than the Holy Spirit. He's challenging them and convicting them rather than the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. is the charge so that there's an emotional reaction to the preaching rather than a a change of the heart drawn by the Spirit. Yeah, and and in this, I mean, he talks about taking new measures. So his idea is that culture has shifted, that other things are going on, so we need to be able to address uh, men. So he would have these protracted meetings, right? He would extend them longer and longer and longer with the intent of, and he writes about this, with the intent of breaking down 
men and women's resistance, resistance. to the gospel. And of course, churches don't like that. Uh, they want uh, structure and order. They want people to meet on a Sunday, not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights for these incredibly long meetings or meeting through the night. It goes against order and decorum. And so he is not <laughs> typically the, the favored person of many pastors. However, for the people, these, these were just amazing spectacles. He would uh, preach extemporaneously. Uh, he would call out people by name. He would speak crassly in the pulpit. He would do all of these things with uh, sweeping antics with his hands. He, he was just a sight to behold. And so even people who weren't interested in spiritual things were interested enough in the, the legend that was Finney. They would come and hear, and yet through these protracted meetings and other things, some of them would make professions of faith and come to Christ. Yeah, we're talking of, of hundreds and thousands of people who respond in his meetings. And, and, you know, we've spoken about Billy Sunday before and, and the things that would happen on the platform. Well, it was, you know, it wasn't Billy Sunday who invented that kind of uh, portrayal with the gospel. Um, clearly, Finney is involved in those kind of things, too. Um, uh, he uses his energy and movement to great effect and, and will preach for incredible lengths of time. Yes. Well, and it, again, it's that extemporaneous uh, preaching. Uh, a, a pastor who was uh, who was struggling with, what do we do with this? You know, it's like, how do we uh, capture this? Uh, historian recounts that this is this is what he said. He said this: the whole community was stirred. Religion was the topic of conversation in the house, in the shop, in the office, and on the street. The only theater in the city was converted into a livery stable. The only circus into a soap and a candle factory. Grog shops were closed. The Sabbath was honored. The sanctuaries were thronged with happy worshipers. A new impulse was given to every philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened and men lived to good. That's a huge testimony. Yeah, if that isn't the definition of a revival, I'm not sure what is. You know, whatever one thinks about his theology, um, you know, he would say that people don't come to Christ, not because they can't, because they're not elect or not predestined, but because they will not. So it is trying to defeat that will not and bring them mm -hmm. to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. And, and anything was fair game in, in doing that. Um, he, he goes to Britain. He has two tours in Britain. Um, you know, uh, incredibly successful again in, in the numbers of people who attend and respond. Um, in Wales, there's such a revival in the 1840s that they actually refer to it as, as the Finney revival because yeah. of what takes place. And, and these are Welshmen and Englishmen not, not prone to react in, in an emotional way to the preaching of the gospel really, right. at least not for a century or so with the preaching of people like Wesley's and Whitfield. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And when we go back and we look, um, his, his teaching, his preaching, his ideas, though pushed against uh, by some in the theological realm uh, for 
uh, playing loose with the text or uh, for maybe not holding to uh, the theologies of the Presbyterian and Pres- Presbyterianism in which he was licensed. Uh, at the same time, he he is seeing immense success. Uh, it's in quotes around success with individuals responding to the preaching. So some have argued that. It, due to the likes of the Second Great Awakening, which Finney is probably the leading catalyst in the midst of that, it, it is actually the 19th century that you can call the most Christian century uh, in American history, um, that this is where you're seeing most of this uh, take place. But but Finney wasn't just a firebrand in the pulpit on the evangelistic circuit. He also was a uh, very staunch abolitionist yes. and uh, called slavery the great national sin. Yes. Uh, would in, in churches where he was leading, he would if he knew someone was a slaveholder, he would refuse them communion uh, and, and thought that this was such a uh, uh, an egregious thing that they were uh, in, engaged in, uh, which then led to. Uh, other pushback against uh, his ministry, especially from uh, those in the slaveholding South. Yeah, he, he made enemies of so many different groups groups of people. You know, uh, he had the Calvinists um, riled up uh, because of going, modifying Calvinism, let's say. Uh, he had uh, Universalists and Unitarians all riled up because of the dramatic way in which he would present heaven and hell <laughs> as the destinies of unsaved people and, and saved people when they die, and, and that was a problem. Um, he had the established church riled up because of these meetings. Um, it was just incredible. Um, he's in London, and uh, he's preaching at the, the Whitfield Chapel that was built for George Whitfield, and uh, he asks for a room where the anxious would be able to go once he's presented the gospel to them, and the minister offers a room that seats about forty people. And uh, he said, "Well, that you know, that's just not going to be enough. You know, isn't there a bigger room?" And and this is what the minister said, "Mr. Finney, remember you are in England, and in London, and that you're not acquainted with our people." You might get people to attend such a meeting under such a call as you propose to make in America, but you will not get people to attend here. But Finney, uh, you know, wouldn't uh, stop asking. And so he was pointed to the what was called the British schoolroom, and that seated about 1,500 people. And that was filled when people responded to the preaching of Finney and Yes, that was London and England. It's so amazing when you think through how he um, he worked through this um, personally and and just continued to not back down. I, there's a and of course our listeners can't can't see this. Uh, one of the the famed photos of him uh, once he's president of Oberlin. Uh, with his big beard, semi-bald head, and he just looks so stern. <laughs> yes, I mean, um, he, he's, he's a professor, he's a president, he's a revival preacher. Oberlin becomes uh, a stop on the Underground Railroad uh, for slaves uh, trying to get to Canada. 
it's a center for abolition. He becomes a writer and and uh, writes a, a great deal in different religious periodicals. So uh, his views become even more widely known. And again, that starts to create more opposition because uh, people see how popular he's becoming. Uh, he writes a great deal against Freemasonry mm-hmm. and the inroads that's having in the American church. Um, uh, he's a man on a mission uh, uh, with these things that uh, he wants to address. And for him, as you say, slavery, he saw uh, as something that really was bringing the judgment of God on America. Yeah, it, the, his tenure at Oberlin College, which Given his lack of educational background as a, as a whole, it's odd that he was selected there for uh, basically what happened. The Japan brothers funded yes. the the development of uh, the the theology department there in Oberlin. He was placed as the the professor, and yes. then eventually, after about a decade or so of serving there as a professor, uh, he was made president, the second president that Oberlin uh, Collegiate Institute, Oberlin College. Uh, he becomes this, their second president. But he doesn't. He doesn't accept unless uh, he gets a couple of terms met. So uh, one term that he says that uh, that must be accepted if he's going uh, uh, to be president is he has to be able to still be able to preach in yes. New York, right? Yes. Uh, he still wants to do his his revival. Second, the school must admit blacks yes. uh, as part of the uh, as part of the contract that they're giving him, and that they would have free speech. So here's one of the first integrated schools in America being led by Charles Finney. Um, Then they're heavily involved in the abolitionist movement. And then, as you said, uh, they become kind of a stop on the Underground Railroad. And and it's not just a stop. It's like an equipping station to get you from here to the next place that you need to go. So Finney, for all of his shortcomings, perhaps in uh, the theological realm on nuancing of theology, his practical living out the faith uh, really demonstrated uh, a profound trust uh, in Christ. And even with that quote I opened up about uh, evangelism, to me, it's, it's so fascinating to hear him talk about how important it is, not just that he's the center of the show, not that just you bring your friend to my uh, revival. It's every believer can do this. Yes. Every believer can do this. Yes. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you not only can do this, you're expected to do this. Yes. Uh, and this is part of uh, kind of his vision of, uh, and maybe, again, I get too fascinated with um, kind of millennial things, but kind of his uh, post-millennial type thinking that everything's going to get better if we just win everyone to Christ. Well, that was Oberlin. You know, he wanted to make that um, a, a center for having an impact on society to make the world better. Uh, and and it involved each Christian being a big part of that. And so, yes, it, it's a post-millennial, uh, you know, reform of society view that we really can make a better world and and hasten the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. I I just that's one of the impulses that uh, many who were post millennial in their theology uh, really brought to the table uh, in, in the nineteenth century. 
uh, and a, there were positive aspects to it. Yes. <laughs> there were negative aspects yes. to it as well. But this is one of those areas where, um, yeah, that, that it just is, you start seeing that play out in, a, in such a helpful way in the 19th century. So uh, again, in, in an era of the 21st century, when we look at how important platforming is or making a presence for yourself, or uh, Finney may have had that platform, but he very quickly was pointing to Christ. Yes. He very quickly was making sure that people understood uh, who that, that that is their only hope for the broken condition of humanity, and that this is the this is the way that you, that you get there, and and I think he genuinely was concerned about how quickly he saw converts backslide, and mm. of course that's one of the criticisms made about his um, kind of meetings that so many people who responded uh, seemed to drift away very quickly. And, and to try and understand that, I think, was a big reason, again, why um, he starts to face opposition with his idea of Christian perfectionism. Yes. That, you know, there is a point that you can get to in your Christian experience uh, where you won't sin again, when your walk with Christ will be so close that it will be a perfect walk. Um, yeah, that, that type of perfectionism has several different strains within the 19th century. Uh, there's Wesleyan strains and, and some others that just become part of the complex story of uh, really our story uh, of what that means. But Finney's own version of that in, in some of the criticisms of Finney is, is that he's teaching a work salvation, that it's not just enough to get to Christ. It's that you have to live this perfect life, and if you don't, then you never found Christ. Therefore, you must continue to work. So uh, this is one of the criticisms leveled at Finney mm -hmm. um, and, and what's there. I think ultimately, when you read more broadly in Finney, I think what he was after is the believer, uh, and kind of a, a sense of the book of James, right? A believer will demonstrate these types yeah, of it's actions. Proof of your conversion. Yeah, not that the not that the actions somehow make you a Christian. But I do think some of his writings, and again, he wasn't a careful writer, uh, wasn't a careful theologian. I think some of his his writings get right up to the edge uh, in how he articulates that, where it'd be easy to mis misunderstand what he's saying. And who knows? We don't have recordings. Who knows what he said when he was preaching extemporaneously? That frightens me yeah, to I death. Mean, what what we have, you know, we have his very popular lectures on revivals of religion, very influential, uh, still being published, still being sold today. Um, and uh, we have transcriptions of uh, lectures that he gave on different subjects too. Um, he, he, you know, he was a prolific writer as well as preacher, mm -hmm. as well as activist. Um, uh, he's married three times, you know, uh, two of his wife, he has you know, five children from his first marriage. Um, he he marries very quickly after his wives die. He he's a man constantly on the move, on including the move, his you know foreign trips to Britain, and he traveled all over Britain preaching. His schedule really was punishing, and it was in Britain he actually became ill and, and never really recovered from that uh, close to the start of the Civil War he returns to 
uh, America, but never really recovers his full health again. And with that, uh, I think we'll actually kind of draw this to close. We may have to come back to Finney at another time just because there's so much that's there. In, in one of his lectures to his students, um, I, I love this quote. Uh, this was captured of, of Finney who's saying uh, he's trying to communicate the importance of believers living their life for Christ. Uh, he said this, If you do not make it a matter of study how you may successfully act in building up the kingdom of Christ, you are acting a very wicked and absurd part as a Christian. It's a good thing for all of us to think about. And with that, listener, we will draw our time together to an end. We look forward to seeing you next week on This Week in Church History.